Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss racial tensions in L.A., learn Little League in our neighborhood, and explored the extreme world of black metal. All this plus the Trump Diaries, AWCYFM, and Size Matters, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for January 24, 2020. I-94 chatted with Steph Cha, a crime novelist whose new book is loosely based on the Latasha Harlan's murder case. Cha discussed writing crime fiction, slacktivism, her love of Yelp, and the divisions that still plague Los Angeles. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Steph Cha, who has written the book Your House Will Pay, and some other books as well, I believe, and she is joining us live from Los Angeles. Steph, how are you doing this morning? Hi, I'm doing great. Awesome. Nice to be out here. Steph, this is uh, this isn't your first book. You've actually written a bunch of uh, crime novels, as I recall, correct? Yeah, uh, this is my fourth. I have uh, three in a series that uh, came out in 2013, 2014, and 2015. That's awesome. You know, actually, th- I have a special interest in crime fiction. I'm the only person on this show, I think, that really reads uh, modern crime fiction. My mom has written about 30 books with uh, a detective as well. Um, she works with Mysterious Press. So I have a soft spot oh. for people who, who write crime fiction. So thanks again for coming on the show and talking to us about this. I read crime fiction. You do? Well, you look for a library, man. You don't count. Okay. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steph, this is a – your house will pay has come out, um, and it's – I'm going to summarize it a little bit, and you can tell me if I'm wildly off base. But you're telling the story of two groups of people, uh, Korean Americans, uh, black Americans, and it, it's largely uh, a riff on some of the things that are going on today with confrontations between uh, groups like the Proud Boys and Antifa, but also the Rodney King riots in L.A. of, of 1992, if my memory serves me correct. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, why this was a fertile subject for you as a novelist? Yeah, um, well, I became interested in uh, writing about uh, the early 90s in Los Angeles because, uh, you know, I'm Korean-American and I grew up in L.A., and that time period has always been kind of salient to me. I was a kid um, when the the Rodney King beating happened and uh, when the rioting happened a year later, Um, so I wasn't that aware of it at the time. I was was five and six years old in 91 and 92, but I... I think that was a period when um, the Korean American community in Los Angeles and um, became nationally salient, and that that's not something that usually happens. And certainly, you know, even even in, over the last thirty years, you know, there haven't been a lot of oca- occasions where Asian Americans, as as a group, are kind of centered in the conversation around racial politics in the U.S., which generally tend to code black and white. Um, and so I was interested in writing about that time for that reason, um, you know, and also because it's focused so much on L.A. And when I started doing research for the book, you know, I was kind of, I was looking at the uh, Latasha Harlan's murder of 1991. Um, I <coughs> saw all the, I, I saw all the direct connections between um, L.A. then and the U.S. more broadly now, um, you know, it, it all just felt very much like I wasn't reading or thinking about history. It seemed like all these issues are very much alive. You know, reading about Rodney King at a time when, uh, when uh, you know, I, I started working on this book in um, late 2014, uh, which was after Michael Brown was killed, and um, and there was there was the rioting in Ferguson. 
uh, and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, it all just felt like part of the same story. Um, and so I wanted to write this contemporary novel with deep roots in the early 90s, um, just to look at the way that we have processed our own history and, um, you know, haven't really gotten past it in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah, and I mean, here in Chicago, of course, we had the Laquan McDonald case, yeah. uh, where, you know, an officer actually did go to jail for murder for that, which was a rare... And that was a... Yeah, and that was... That was a huge moment because, um, you know, that that, that was um, a few years ago, right? Yeah, uh, it wasn't. Yes. Van Dyke is just, uh, he's actually just started to serve a sentence yeah, now. Yeah, sentencing that was, was just last year. Yeah, it was just last year. So, uh, and, uh, But he only got five years, I believe, right, for, for murder, isn't that correct? Well, it wasn't murder. It, well, I mean, it was uh, not first degree murder. Correct, it, it was, was second, manslaughter. manslaughter in the second degree. Because you yeah. have to be premeditated. Yeah, in Chicago. I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not justifying it, yeah. I'm just saying <clears> what he got. Yeah, that was that, and he pled, so... Um, but what one of the, I, I want to dive back into that. But one of the things that interested me, and I, I don't know if you know this about Chicago, we actually have a large Korean American diaspora here as well. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they actually talk. She actually mentions, uh, I, I believe it's your mother, or not your, the character's mother's funeral that relatives came in from Chicago. Yeah, yeah. yeah my uh, my dad's family, um, which came here before my mom's family did. Um, my dad's family immigrated to Chicago um, over 50 years ago, just yeah. over 50 years ago. One of the strengths I thought in your book was Grace's character, and there was a, a moment in the novel when she's pushed by a kind of a tabloid a blogger, um, not pushed physically, but she, he was trying to get some quotes from her, and she trips and fell, and she said something. Um, well, I guess I should rewind a little bit. Grace is unaware that her mother shot and killed a young black woman in the 90s. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler. Well, I mean, it's it's <laughs> we, not we, like yeah. you got to. You, gotta, you, ha- you <laughs> have to know that to get through the novel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and she trips and falls, and she says, you know, that, you know, this woman, this girl was so much bigger than her mother. I think she said she was Shaq-like. And she called her a savage, I think. A savage. And it turns into this huge, you know, the thousands of people are reading it. she's racist and i i find that what i thought was that's really uh prevalent in mm. this time because a lot of times pe- things are taken out of context and they'll show like somebody saying something and then they don't show the whole thing they p- particularly with uh i've noticed with the right wing they'll like they'll take like little bits of something a politician says but not give the whole background and the story and it it says a lot about the information that we consume in this era it, it, it can be really uh, frustrating sometimes not only that what was really impressive to me about it was was her character what she, what she went through i mean that grace was so real to me um i was i felt like that when i was you know 10 15 years ago i know a lot of people who are like that and what we're taken through is is a kind of awakening for for grace and sh- she's because she's ignorant to a lot of the issues, she, she's acting out on raw emotion in that in that moment, in confusion, and it's the aftermath that she has to wade through. And you see her struggle with; um, she's attacked left and right by trollers, I don't know, whatever you yeah, call them, yeah. and she has to work all this out internally while while, while she's being slammed publicly before she's understood it all. I yeah, and, and, and that's and that's something that I wanted to deal with, you know, because, 
she's somebody who you know I have a lot of sympathy for her, but I needed I I wanted to put her in a place where like she does say stuff that is like pretty hard to swallow, mm-hmm. um, and you know, but it but for me it came from a place that was um, you know she's defending her mom, yeah. and so she has to do this thing where she is processing um, what her mother has done. Um, which is in conflict with the things that she already believes, but that, you know, she doesn't have, like, the strong foundation of, like, understanding the the kind of context of American racism and the political moment. Um, you know, she's somebody who has kind of been able to bumble along in her own bubble without really confronting these things in any meaningful way, thinking that they have very little to do with her. You know, and I think, and I think a lot of, and I think a lot of people are in this, in this boat, you know, I, I, I live in L.A. where most people are not conservative, but where there are plenty of people who don't really think about politics in a deep way and just keep keep it at arm's distance and think these are things that happen in the news. These are not things that affect my life, you know. And so I wanted to write about, I want to write about a character who, um, who thinks that this has nothing to do with her and who it turns out, you know, is very much part of part of this conversation and part of this history in a way that in a way that all of us are you know i think i think there's this um this choice that a lot of people make to be apolitical um but that that in that isn't itself a political choice you know so i was thinking a lot when i was writing this book about the the um the way that we inherit wrongdoing the way that we inherit our uh, our parents our parents sins but also the sins of our ancestors and of this country, you know, even like, even the immigrants come in and, um, and they, co- they don't come in clean because when you come to America and when you become American, um, you inherit American history in a way that if you don't understand, uh, then you become complicit in, um, in the power structures that pre-existed you. Um, and I think that is something that happened with the Korean community, the Korean immigrant community. Um, and and grace becomes a, p- a part of this um, and has to kind of work it out um, in front of people, which is an ugly process that I think that nobody would want to go through publicly. I have been dying to ask you this since the review started, since this interview started. So I'm just going to jump in here. You also uh, hold a a peculiar distinction in that you are an elite reviewer for Yelp. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I know that you used to. Uh, I believe you collaborated in the Scout for uh, the late Jonathan Gold from the LA Times, yes. right? Yeah. So, uh, I I found that fascinating and amusing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that part of your life? You know, it's interesting that you talk about it as social media because it is social media, but it's not. That's actually not how I approach Yelp. You know, I think of social media as Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, and. Uh, you know, which also shows my age because I'm not, I, I don't understand the things that come after. Um, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm active on Twitter, but not really on Instagram or Facebook. And Yelp is something I'm very active on, but I don't, I don't really, I, and I have Yelp friends. They're just people who add me. But um, I, but the way I approach Yelp is I write the reviews and I leave. Um, and that has, I, I started doing the reviews in late 2008 so it's been 11, over 11 years now where I've been writing Yelp reviews most 
da- most days of my life. Um, you know, I, I think I'm I think I'm approaching three thousand eight hundred reviews now. Oh my lord! <laughs> <laughs> it's millions. It's, it's millions of words. That's it, like a year uh, of your life. Is Yelp all businesses or is it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you, yeah, wait a minute. So you've written more words for Yelp than you have in your books. Oh, absolutely! It is. Um, it is the largest piece of my body of work. Um, it's, but it's, uh, and it's. Nobody asked me to do them, um, and I can stop whenever I want. Oh, that's um, what that's what all users say. Oh, I know. But, you know, here on this show, the friends of Bill know that one well. <laughs> <laughs> but technically, but technically, you know, I I write them, you know, of my own volition, and nobody's waiting around for them. I don't share them. Really, they just are out there. But, you know, I, I was never able to successfully maintain a blog, which in 2011, when I sold my first book, you know, um, I was encouraged to have a blog, and I had one for a little bit. It just kind of, I wrote five posts, and it kind of fizzled out. Um, but Yelp is a way for me to to be writing every day, and um, and it kind of, you know, the, the, the subject matter is self-generative, so I don't really have to think about it too deeply. But it is something that, um, you know, I started writing in um, late 2008, which was just a few months after I started writing my first novel. And so I think, in a way, Yelp is a medium that has helped me kind of beat out my voice by writing just millions of words, um, you know. <laughs> and it's really low stakes, and it's easy for me to do, and it's kind of fun, although it is, at this point, this massive compulsion and burden that will follow me around until I die because <laughs> now I can't stop doing it because it will be abandoning this project that I have had going for my entire writing career. Um, and, yeah, so I yell pretty much every business that I have uh, that I walk into, including things like rest stops. Oh, I've noticed. Public oh, cart, yeah, I know. You know, which aren't even a business. If you can Yelp, if there's something that like can plausibly have a Yelp page, and I have been there, I have probably Yelped it. John and guest host Jerry spoke with Bill and Teresa DePetrie about Bridgeport's Little League team. John and Jerry talked about the history of the Donovan Park team, interest in baseball, and teaching kids the fundamentals. Radio Free airs every Tuesday, drive time. We've got uh, Bill and uh, Teresa LaPrat from uh, 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 Donovan Little League. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. So tell us a little bit about uh, how long you've uh, been involved in this league and... uh, and uh, what it is today? Um, we started in the league um, back in 1997 with our oldest boy at three years old. Um, Been there just, ever since. Yeah, just started off coaching, and about 13 years ago we took over running the league. So we've been there. I think we're starting our 24th year of being at Donovan Park. Well, that's some uh, some great service to the community. Thank you. Thank you. How how many leagues? Uh, how many teams do you have in the league this year? Um, we just started registration um, 
last year, I believe, with all the kids we had and everything, we were close to about 17. We had about 250 kids total. Yeah. We start at age three, and we go all the way up to age 16. And how are those teams divided? I mean, how much age group separation do you maintain? So we try to keep up with uh, other leagues in the city because as the kids get older, like 10 years and up, they do inner city play. So we play other leagues in the area. Um, so the way they're divided is almost like it's just like rule of thumb. Um, we do have our three- and four-year-olds. You definitely have to keep them together because their intention span is not long and then you have five and six year olds and then we do seven to nine ten to twelve thirteen and fourteen and then fifteen and sixteen so they're not divided by skill or anything like that we don't believe we don't believe in in that um there is a draft when they get to 10 years old and up so that's pretty exciting the coaches come in and randomly just pick kids they don't know them they don't know their skill level or anything they just get the luck of the draw and they get what they get and then that's a coach's job is to coach them and teach them um the sport and sportsmanship and um how to get along how to make friends um so you know it's a coach's job but all our coaches everything's volunteer nobody gets paid to do um any any of it we don't get paid to run it um strictly volunteer for everybody and what would a normal week be like uh, in season for for the kids? I mean, how many games? How many practices? What would they? What are they essentially signing up for? Say in that age ten and up group. Um, normally, they play at least two games a week. Uh, practices are totally up to the coaches because that's we don't know their schedule, their work schedules. Uh, but most of the coaches sometimes have two practice, at least one practice a week. Uh, we play Monday through Thursday, and then Saturday and Sunday. The only time we don't really play at the park is on Fridays because they have adult softball league. So we share the park, you know, friendly. <laughs> so the um, 10-year-olds, the 10 to 12-year-olds, they usually play. Um, we try to make the their games home games, um, and but other parks come play us. Our teenagers, our high school age, we call it thirteen to sixteen. They do a lot. They do travel. Um, nothing out of state, though. They don't do like out of state travel, but they travel all over the city um, to compete against other parks. They even we join a league with them, um, and then they do like playoffs, and they have all that stuff at the end too. So it's it's pretty fun for them. Um, but like Bill was saying. It gives them some type of travel experience uh, to see what else is out there, what other talent is out there, and it gives them the opportunity to get outside of their neighborhood as well um, to experience different areas of the city. So they seem to enjoy it. So that's interesting. So you have interleague play, mm-hmm. um, and then how many of the two games per week are, or, or is it once a month, or how, how much is travel? Um, the older kids are 13 and 14s. Uh, we try to make as many games as we can at home uh, to make it convenient. But um, they, they do, do travel. Yeah, they do at least one game a week where they're traveling. Um, because since they're older kids, we limit uh, park down to just having them play because we don't, you know, um, don't want nobody else on the other field. Um, so their games are usually a little bit later 
in the day, like 7.30. So they travel at least once a week. How do you find the the uh, kids' level of baseball knowledge? Uh, do they come to you with a with a sense of the game, or or do you find that you have to do uh, your coaches have to do quite a bit of instruction? Uh, some of them come with really good knowledge of the game, but they don't have the skill. Um, so it's up to our coaches. They know what they're doing, but they just gotta teach them the exact thing. You know they. Like you hit them a ground ball. They know they got to get down. They know they got to get ready. But it's like the last minute that ball's coming, and they turn their head away because they're afraid to get hit. But they know what they have to do. It's our job to teach them, hey, got to have confidence in yourself that you're going to be able to catch that ball. Don't be scared. If you do get hit, it's going to happen. Um, But other than that, um, we do get quite a few kids that don't know much about baseball and the parents just want to get them into some kind of sport and and it's our job to you know try to teach them um but i'm sure things have changed a little bit too though in baseball that we've seen since our our oldest is 26 our youngest is 16 in that time span we've seen baseball change to where it's more competitive so at the age of seven and nine, they're stealing bases. You know, we're trying to teach them how to steal bases because as they progress and they get to 13, 14 years old and they try out for their baseball team, you want them to have a little bit more knowledge of how they can compete to make their baseball team. So I think it's a little bit more um, advanced than it was back in the day. Um, but they can still have fun. What little kid doesn't love to slide in the home plate, you know? <laughs> Three- and four-year-olds are trying to slide in the home plate, and they don't really – they don't really – they play, but it's not really struck. You know what I mean? It's like organized chaos is what I call it. Um, but the sport itself, I think, has changed as far as the competitiveness goes, if that makes sense. Along the way, have you had to uh, modify your rules about participation and – who gets into games and how many innings do do kids get guaranteed and so forth? Yeah, we got um, rules for that. Um, every coach knows all the kids. Um, they got to play at least two innings in the field. We have a continuous batting order, so there isn't like just nine kids batting and that's it. Every kid that shows up, he bats. That you know they got to get out in the field. Um, so. You know, Johnny's not playing the whole entire game. Eventually, he has to get taken out. Um, this way, it's, it makes it fair for everybody. And we sort of keep track. Um, since I quit coaching a little bit, I stay back and watch it. Um, some parents are bringing that to our attention, that they believe that their kid hasn't been playing that much. So I'll come to the game and scope it out and see, and I'll see what's going on. But some of these kids, too, i seen, and I explained to the parents, the coach is trying to get them to get out there to go play, and they're like, I don't want to go out there. I don't want to play. They're throwing a tantrum in the dugout, <laughs> and it's like. You don't want to fight with them because it, it makes it even worse. It's like, okay, you don't have to play. Go ahead, sit down in this <laughs> inning. But eventually they do have to get their two innings in. Um, and then as they get older, though, because – the high school the high school age is a little bit more tricky because they're not going to be playing every inning, every game when they get to high school. So you want to kind of 
prepare them for that as well. Um, but they all do get an opportunity to get out on the field. And, you know, at an older age, they have to show that they want to be there. They want to compete. Um, and they're not still crying at the age of 13. I don't want to go out there. It's too hot. Do I have to put that equipment on? You know. <laughs> I probably would have been in that category. <laughs> what, how, are the, uh, how did the Dragons do last season? Um, we made it all the way to the last round of the playoffs, and we lost to uh, Humble Park. Uh, but the year before that, we won the city championship. Oh, wow. Yeah, they do pretty good when they want to. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you? How do you find the uh, uh, the acceptance within the the community? Do you get uh, some people just passing by who will stay and watch a couple of innings, whether they have someone uh, playing or not? I mean, does do you sense a little bit of community involvement? We actually we do, and we also have a concession stand, so we have a lot of neighbors that'll come up just for our hot dogs or hamburgers, and then they'll stick around and watch a game. So it is nice to see for the community. It's very nice to see them come together um, like that. We've have players who've aged out and they're in their twenties, and they come back just to you know check it out and see what's changed, and um, you know they'll catch a game every now and then. So it is really good to see that part. Um, of the baseball league for the community you know it gives the little ones something to do and they make friends as well as the adults the adults make friends um, it's nice when you can when you have a toddler and they're playing in the park and you can still feel safe watching your toddler in the park and still watch your your daughter or your son playing baseball on the field um, we try we keep it a safe community for all um, and it's just a homey feeling. We don't have anyone that comes to our park and walks away mad or feels unsafe or like they can't be there. Um, so it's it's good all around, I think. I believe it is for our community. Size matters, size matters. Cliff Kyle Seismankowski. Valentine's Day is tomorrow. That means today is Palatine's Day. I just hope it's not hitting up craft breweries in Palatine. No, it's just two dudes hanging out doing stuff you'd normally do with a lady. <laughs> I didn't get you any roses. Roses? What are you talking about? You think I'm a rose guy? I'm a rhododendra guy. We've known each other for two years and you still don't know what kind of flowers I like? Okay, relax. I was joking. That's fine. I'm still not joking. Okay, what kind of roses do I like, Kyle? How would I know? You don't share anything. I bet you spent all your money on Valentine's Day stuff. Yeah, I did. I spent Valentine's Day with my girlfriend, not my creepy squatter friend. Nah, no worries. But I'd like to let our neighbors know <laughs> that you don't have to have a pal for Valentine's Day. Because if you don't have a pal to treat you like a lady, you okay. can treat yourself like one. So what's first? First, we're going to get our toenails did. We are at Rita's Nail and Taxes Salon, about to get our toenails did. And for our listeners, this is not a legitimate business. Why are you so down about this whole experience? This is something I should be doing with Claire. I, Which I, part, I... the nails or the taxes? Kyle, good to see you, honey. Oh, Rita, honey, thanks for fitting us in. Who is your friend? He's shy. Well, hello, shy. <laughs> you ticklish? Yeah, sort of. I'm John. Well, nice. why don't you take your shoes off and we'll get going. There you go. Did you bring your W-2? Nah, we're just getting our nails did. Oh my gosh. What? Your feet are pristine. Yeah, no duh. You can thank me for that. <laughs> You're too good to me, Wait, Rita. So, so what smells like Cool Ranch Doritos all the time? 
I use an exfoliant foot rub Rita makes. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> oh, Kyle. Really? It's not just for feet. It's a huh. chicken and pork rub, too. You're a doll, oh, Rita. You uh, saved it. I tell you, she saved oh, my sweetie, feet. you're I, too nice. That's really interesting. Now, you go ahead and you take your shoes off. <sighs> okay. My blue heaven! That's Murray Abraham, what the ship is wrong with your feet? Those aren't feet, those are hooves! <sighs> yeah, this is why I didn't want to do this, by the way. It looks like the Incredible Hulk and a Hobbit had feet babies. Listen, this has always been an issue for me, so please... I bet you could kick through a brick wall with those. <sighs> I'll okay. be honest. Not cool. You can uh, fit about three more toes on each uh, of them feet. You're gonna need a bigger pumice stone. Oh, this is so embarrassing. Where you buy shoes from? Probably a cobbler. Okay, I get it. Okay, if it's that bad, we could just go. All right, Rita, I'm sorry. Okay, I, I can do this. Just gotta get my headphones <sighs> on, get the Rocky Three soundtrack going. Rocky Three? That's the best one. Ow! Don't move uh, now. Okay. Just take it in. Ow! You know, I can't believe I'm the one with the normal feet. Whatever. What do you want to do after this? I kind of lost my appetite. I think we might just call it a night after this. It's fine by me. Great. You know, feet like that, I gotta ask. Are you sure you're not from Bridgeport? <laughs> Time has taught us the mysteries of evolution through the platypus and through John Petrowski's feet. So with that, I hope you enjoy your Valentine's Day and keep listening to Lumpin' Radio. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump brags about withholding evidence from Congress. Trump calls his generals babies who don't know how to win. Trump strips water protections and blasts climate change activists. Rudy tailed an ambassador. And Trump torpedoes a Michelle Obama initiative on her birthday. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1092, January 16th. The House of Representatives sent the Senate two articles of impeachment against Trump, initiating just the third presidential impeachment trial in American history. Only one Democrat, that Colin Peterson of Minnesota, joined every Republican in voting no. As the Senate opened the impeachment trial, Trump tweeted, quote, I just got impeached for making a perfect phone call. As the House sent the articles to the Senate, more evidence of Trump's pressure scheme on Ukraine began to leak out. New documents provided by an accomplice of Rudy Giuliani show that before Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch was removed from her post, an associate sent menacing text messages suggesting he had her under surveillance. That associate, Robert Hyde, is currently running for Congress as a Republican in Connecticut. He had previously requested FBI protection after he claimed persons unknown were out to get him. Also, Yuri Lutsenko. The ousted former prosecutor in Ukraine worked to undermine Yovanovitch because she had correctly insisted that he be investigated for gross negligence and corruption. Lutsenko told Giuliani associate Lev Parnas he was willing to help get dirt on the Bidens for Trump, but he had to get rid of the ambassador first, quote, and here you can't even remove one fool. In a series of damaging interviews, Parnas told reporters that not only was Trump aware of every aspect of the scheme, but multiple high-level officials were as well. Parnas named Mike Pence, John Bolton, Devin Nunes, and William Barr, and specifically called out the Attorney General as, quote, basically on the team. 
Parnas also claimed that Pence's planned trip to attend the Ukraine president's inauguration was suddenly canceled because the Ukrainians would not agree to the demand for an investigation of the Bidens. Trump, quote, knew exactly what was going on. He was aware of all my movements. I wouldn't do anything without the consent of Giuliani or the president. Subsequently, Trump denied knowing Parnas and claimed that a photo of himself with Parnas was just one of thousands he'd taken with his supporters. Quote, I don't know him at all, don't know what he's about, don't know where he comes from, know nothing about him. Perhaps he's a fine man, perhaps he's not. Parnas, in fact, had multiple meetings with Trump and was a major donor to his campaign. Trump signed a phase one trade deal with China. The deal does not substantially rework the relationship between the two nations, but it does include a commitment on China's part to purchase an additional $200 billion worth of American goods and services. The initial agreement also includes new protection for trade secrets and intellectual property. Day 1093, January 17th. Trump added Alan Dershowitz and Kenneth Starr to his Senate impeachment trial defense team. Starr was the independent counsel who investigated Bill Clinton and was fired from Baylor University. Dershowitz's past clients include Jeffrey Epstein and O.J. Simpson. Both were chosen for their TV appearances. Dershowitz, who is also a major Democratic donor, said he has, quote, lost friends by agreeing to take the case. Under withering pressure, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo committed to investigate allegations of surveillance of his former ambassador, Marie Yovanovitch. Pompeo said he believed the allegations, quote, would ultimately prove wrong. Meanwhile, the person at the center of the allegations, a Connecticut congressional candidate, was visited by the FBI. He claims he was, quote, just playing on Parnas. Despite earlier claims that no one was injured in an Iranian missile attack in Iraq, in fact, 11 U.S. service members were treated for concussions and possible traumatic brain injuries. The report from CENTCOM contradicts earlier statements by Trump that there were no American casualties in the January 8th attack. Day 1094, January 18th. Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, asked to withdraw his two-year-old guilty plea for lying to the FBI. Flynn, who appears to be being egged on by a new, rabid pro-Trump lawyer, claims that the Justice Department's, quote, stunning and vindictive reversal of its earlier representations to this court are incredible, vindictive, in bad faith, and in breach of his plea agreement. Flynn now appears to be risking a hefty jail sentence. Trump's tax cuts are now being investigated by the Treasury Department. The so-called Opportunity Zone tax break was meant to help poor communities by encouraging investment in new housing, businesses, and jobs. Instead, it was used to fund luxury development projects in wealthy neighborhoods. Those projects included ones by friends of Treasury Secretary Steve Nunchen and members of the Kushner family. Trump finally released his hold on $8.2 billion in disaster aid to Puerto Rico. HUD failed to release the funding in September as asked by Congress, claiming it needed to ensure financial safeguards were in place. The National Archives blurred signs held by protesters during the 2017 Women's March that were critical of Trump. The archives said the decision was, quote, so as not to engage in current political controversy. Trump is exploring making changes to an anti-bribery law. A 1977 law makes it illegal for companies to bribe foreign officials. Trump publicly complained that, quote, it's just so unfair that American companies aren't allowed to pay bribes to get business overseas. We're going to change that. And Trump reportedly called his top military officials losers and a bunch of dopes and babies during a meeting at the Pentagon. Trump told the officials he wouldn't go to war with you people because you don't know how to win anymore. Day 1095, January 19th. Trump's legal team told the Senate to, quote, swiftly reject the flimsy impeachment charges, claiming he should immediately be acquitted because of a rigged process by House Democrats. 
In a 110-page brief submitted to the Senate the day before Trump's trial began, Trump's lawyer dismissed the two articles as a charade that is frivolous and dangerous. Pat Cipollone claimed the charges are constitutionally invalid and deficient on their face because they don't involve any violations of law. The legal team also maintained Trump did absolutely nothing wrong and is a victim of a brazenly political act by House Democrats. Constitutional scholars who analyzed the brief said it was almost, quote, comically deficient and did not hold water legally. Trump lashed out at his Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. Trump made an impromptu call to Azar saying he regrets getting involved in that vaping thing and that Azar is not getting it done and needs to hurry up on getting drug prices lowered. Polls show Democrats are trusted by a wide margin on health care over Trump. And Trump proposed rolling back school nutrition standards, allowing schools to cut the amount of vegetables and fruits required, allowing them to sell more pizzas, burgers, and potatoes to students. The stricter nutritional standards for school lunches were former First Lady Michelle Obama's signature achievement. Trump's rollback was announced on her birthday. Day 1096, January 20th. Adam Schiff accused the White House of having the NSA and CIA withhold documents about Ukraine from Congress. Quote, the NSA in particular is withholding what are potentially relevant documents for oversight responsibilities in Ukraine, but also withholding documents potentially relevant that senators might want to see during the trial, adding there are signs the CIA may be on the same course. An Intelligence Committee official later confirmed that, quote, both the NSA and CIA initially pledged cooperation. It appears now the White House has interceded before production of documents could begin. In a related story, House Democrats released a third set of documents from Lev Parnas showing in detail how Devin Nunes was involved in efforts to dig up dirt on Joe Biden in Ukraine. Nunes' office was aware of the months-long effort to obtain dirt on Biden. He initially denied knowing Parnas, but has since admitted the two had spoken after phone records showed several calls between the two. The House also produced documents that show Robert Hyde, that is the Republican congressional candidate in Connecticut, messaged a number from Belgium describing the surveillance of former U.S. Ambassador Yovanovitch. The White House official responsible for Russian and European policy was put on indefinite leave. Andrew Peek, who is the third person to occupy that job in a single year, was escorted off the White House grounds pending a security investigation. Day 1097, January 21st. Trump's impeachment began in acrimonious fashion with Democrats accusing Republicans of aiding and abetting a cover-up. By party-line votes, Republicans blocked Democrats' efforts to subpoena witnesses and documents related to Ukraine. However, Republican moderates forced a last-minute change to rules that had been designed to speedily acquit Trump without a hearing. It is now unclear if witnesses will be called at all. So far, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has held his caucus together despite signs that as many as nine Republican senators are feeling nervous about the direction of the trial. Trump himself spent the afternoon at Davos, mocking his impeachment trial and railing against climate change. Calling activists like Greta Thunberg, who was speaking at the conference, a prophet of doom, Trump asked for a rejection of, quote, alarmists who always demand the same thing, absolute power to dominate, transform, and control every aspect of our lives. Thunberg responded in a tart speech telling the attendees, quote, in case you haven't noticed, our planet is on fire. Trump said he'd like to call witnesses at his impeachment trial. Quote, I'd like it to go the long way with testimony from a lot of people, said Trump, before naming National Security Advisor John Bolton, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Energy Secretary Rick Perry, and his acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. Trump then claimed he would not let John Bolton testify, quote, because he knows some of my thoughts, what happens if he reveals what I think about a certain leader, and it's not very positive. You don't like people testifying when they didn't leave on good terms. Trump also publicly bragged about keeping material from Congress, which was not lost on the senators hearing his trial. Quote, I thought our team did a very good job, but honestly, we have all the material. They don't have the material. 
Day 1098, January 22nd. House impeachment managers began their case for removing Trump from office, saying he tried to cheat his way to re-election. In a series of methodical speeches, the House laid out Trump's attempts to bribe the foreign government to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Trump sent well over 100 tweets during the testimony, most of which were defenses of his conduct. Apparently, he also lied 81 times during that tweet storm. The Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos and his mobile phone hacked in 2018 after receiving a WhatsApp message from the personal account of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman apparently sent an unsolicited video that infected Bezos' phone with spyware that enabled surveillance. Bezos' security team said the hack was an attempt to influence, if not silence, news coverage of Saudi Arabia. Evidence of an affair Bezos was having was leaked to the National Enquirer following that hack. In a related story, Trump again demanded that Apple unlock iPhones for investigators in criminal cases, complaining that Apple has refused to build a so-called backdoor. Apple's adamantly refused to do so, noting that giving the FBI a backdoor would also give repressive regimes around the world a way to hack into dissidents' phones and communications. Trump stripped protections for streams, wetlands, and other bodies of water, torpedoing the so-called Waters of the United States Act. That was an Obama-era initiative. Trump removed federal protections for more than half of the nation's wetlands, as well as hundreds of thousands of small waterways. He also will allow landowners and property developers to dump pollutants, such as pesticides, fertilizers, and landfill, directly into those waterways, and to destroy or fill in wetlands for construction projects. The rollback is the biggest polluting move in decades. A team of scientists appointed by Trump called the move neglecting established science. Trump claimed the U.S. economy would be so much closer to 4% and better if it weren't for the Fed. I could see 5,000 to 10,000 points more on the Dow if the Fed hasn't raised rates. The Fed has actually cut rates three times in 2019 alone. Washington, D.C. has sued Trump's inaugural committee, alleging it violated his nonprofit status by spending more than $1 million to book a ballroom at the Trump International Hotel. Citing evidence that the objections to the committee's own event planner, the suit claims Trump knowingly inflated rates at the hotel to launder money. Trump wants to restrict travel by pregnant women to the United States in an effort to restrict so-called birth tourism, in which women travel to the United States to give birth. Children born in the USA automatically become citizens. Far-right demagogues have claimed that legions of foreigners are traveling to the USA to have so-called anchor babies to emigrate to the United States. 51% of Americans say the Senate should vote to convict Trump and remove him from office. 69% say the Senate trial should include testimony from new witnesses who do not testify before the House. 32% of Republicans and Republican-leaning voters say Trump has definitely or probably done illegal things. That group, however, strongly opposes removing him from office. 59% of those who believe Trump has committed crimes say he should not be removed. These are the Trump Diaries. Bad at Sports spoke to Josh Jorner and Chris Eikensier about an exhibit of extreme heavy metal iconography on display at Public Works. You Will Die reveals how black metal has developed whole worlds that explore spirituality, politics, and life itself. Bad at Sports airs Wednesdays at 11. We've got uh, Chris Eikensier and Josh Zoner. Zerner. Zerner. Ah. Close. Uh, I was fe- it's feeling very German. Yeah. It's feeling very German. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you just Germanized your last name. Look out. Here so, we yeah, well, welcome to Bad at Sports. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so, we're going to die? What's going on? Yeah, it's a reality. That every every listener, every single person who can hear my voice is going to die. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Jeez, Brian, it's just an art. I mean, 
you know, well, we're just, we're just, we're just, we're just, <laughs> so we're, dark. Just, we're just laying the groundwork. Maybe, maybe, you know, yeah. some artificial listener, some AI or something might, might not. It's gonna, oh, actually, those yeah, the, exist. the yeah. highest percentage of our audience are actually bots. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's so, the future. But, so uh, they will not die. They will not, well, well they is, could be deleted. They could be deleted. They this is the deleted. future that liberals yeah. want. Uh, um, <laughs> so you guys are like the bosses, not just the curators, but the bosses of public works. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. Yeah, yeah, I guess we're bosses. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, everyone's a boss in their own right. So that's true. Should yeah, wear that's your true. wear your bossness proud. Yeah, <laughs> cool. We'll um, should we? Yeah. So, so obviously, we're talking about death here. You will die is actually an exhibition, correct? It is. I heard it's actually about life. Well, well, well let's, <laughs> what is it? Is it? What, what what's the show? Uh, go ahead, Josh. Oh yeah. So, um, you will die is a show that sort of manifested out of Chris and I and our co-curator Scott Shellhammer's love for death metal and heavy metal, um, and the idea was to sort of play with the the contradictions that death metal uh, alludes to. It's like a constant revolt against like society and uh, economic values to a degree. Um, to also to a degree like sexuality and all these political topics. Uh, and so we wanted to gather all of our favorite artists from uh, all over the death metal scene, especially like the, the Godfather pillar type artists, and put them into one show. So and is this a good time to tell our listeners that you guys are in full like death metal kiss makeup? We yeah, are Guar, Guar would be jealous of the costumes. It's hard to wear the makeup hair. when it's this cold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> we, but we had to do it for it's the in show. In our faces yeah. now. Yeah, pores. I really won't be seen outside. Oh, so it's yeah. a tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go to our Instagram if you want to see this yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah, these these two nerds with glasses. Yeah, are just. Yeah, we're actually two nerdy guys. On the radio, you can be any. It's kind of like metal. You can be anything. You can be anything. Oh, I just or, or the it. internet. So, oh, well, sorry, I don't know anything I love about this. it. Um, I can finally be who I really am. So you assembled metal icons. Yes. How did you get them to comp? Like, well, they didn't come, but their work came. Maybe well, some came. of them, yeah, some, some of them of flew them. out for it. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I. How do you decide, like? Well, it was so. I've been I've I've played drums in heavy metal bands since I was 13 years old, and it was like you know Master of Puppets and Metallica kind of like captured every kid who felt like they didn't belong into something when I was uh, in junior high, and that led to like a lifelong uh, passion and uh, participation in metal music. And uh, I've been in several bands and met Scott that way. And Scott's uh, played with. All kinds of great Chicago bands, um, including a couple metal ones. Uh, American Heritage is one of them. And yeah, uh, please educate us about. I don't know anything about Chicago metal. Chicago, the Chicago metal, metal music scenes. history. That's well, why we had you on the show, actually. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to fill in all the blanks. Well, I only know so much myself, but I mean, there's a lot of great bands that have been in Chicago and are known around the world, like Indian and Yakuza, um, Bloodiest. And Scott's band, American Heritage, is a great one. I've been in, in this band called Beak um, since the mid two thousands or late, whatever you call two thousand seven ish. The aught, the aughts, right? Yeah, the aughts. Yeah. Oh yeah, sorry, the late aughts. I'm like, the, the mid late aughts. <laughs> I'm really mid to late aughts. I've been stoked to be in the Roaring Twenties. It's really like an enjoyable era. Oh, yeah. um, that's it's a great, hitting me great point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's really hitting. I'm feeling the roar. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, so, so what you're saying is you're not fans of of the metal scene, you are the metal scene. Partially, I mean, I wouldn't go that far, because, you know, I always felt like the imposter syndrome of like showing up to these things that were people, like this, the subculture is so intense. 
um, that I always felt like the misfit. Um, but where, if, you with know. your all your gear and all your makeup, you fit right. <laughs> yeah, your leather. I, that's me trying really hard. Um, but you know, so Scott and Scott especially has uh, done a lot of touring with these bands and, and ended up meeting so and so and so and so. And Scott's done a ton of. Um, we we actually both have done a lot of album cover art, but Scott more in the metal world, and he does. He's a painter, and so he ended up meeting a lot of these guys. I think word of mouth or through the internet and stuff like that. So he was the conduit for sure for just like approaching some of these guys who literally defined um, what heavy metal album art looks like, or as far as like extreme and death metal. So so that, that that's actually what I was kind of curious about, of course, because metal itself is music, but mm. this is a I know. visual <laughs> gallery exhibition. Right. So um, you mentioned that it's album art, or but also some of them, some musicians are also artists. So, like, how yep. how do we get from from one to the other, or, and what what is it that we actually see in the show? Yeah, well, the show is entirely visual art. Yeah, it is. Um, it is visual art. Um, what we did, Scott and I, we basically put together a huge list of artists that we really enjoyed. Um, some being like historically significant um, artists, and then. We also found some more contemporary artists who exist within the genre, and we just started sending out tons of emails. And that does not sound glamorous at all, but it is truly the way it organized. Uh, um, that's literally all the show. The show is like talking in a dark room and sending emails. That's how it works. That's so how it works. We're, it's uh, really glamorous. So you completely we do it know. In, we do it in oh, full yes. makeup. Like, yeah. Yeah, we so, know all about it. And you got like every artist that you reached out to? Well, yeah, we, we actually did. We had probably more artists than we thought were going to respond. Um, and then the great part about it is because of how close-knit the metal community is, um, once they f- like once one artist found out that another one was in the show, they were like, oh, I know that guy. I want to be in the show. This is the real art world. So then, like, yes. it's, that is how, how the real works. art world And then works. it just became, like, guys who are friends uh, realizing that their friends are also in this show, and then they were like, well, yeah, we should just do the show together. So... Um, well, you know, it turns out, too, uh, you know, Dan Seagraves, who literally founded, I, I, I would say kind of pioneered what, what these For extreme sure. metal album covers look like in 1989 with uh, the band Entombed. He did an a album called Left Hand Path mm-hmm. that became a huge, humongous sort of, you know, milestone in the world of metal. Um, he flew out for the show, and uh, it was amazing having him be part of it. But he, I was really surprised. He said, you know, on opening night, he was like, I've, I've only done a few of these um, exhibits before and you know this isn't really like my you know my everyday life um which is fascinating to me so like i think a lot of the the draw to the show too is i mean scott and i talking about it was like is anybody going to care about this uh was but well but we're going to do this regardless but i had no idea there'd be interest in this but then i also never thought about like the artists themselves being sort of like oh this isn't you know i'm not normally asked to be part of um legit art exhibits because it's just not something that our culture, you know, flexes to include. The Killer Drones blessed us with their presence in Studio A. This was engineered by Ari Shellis.
By all means, go for it. Okay. Well, the first one, and one that I've been following a lot, is uh, sort of this idea. I mean, who hasn't? I'm me. Even even I am guilty of using the wrong there, 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 your, your in a sort of a text chain when you're not really paying attention. Um, and Postgrammar wants to sort of help us with this because it's such a pervasive issue mm-hmm. with everybody. Um, but in addition to that, they identify a problem that's not just inherent in the misspeaking or misthinking about a word. They they point to this as an example of where uh, of sort of an egoism. Now, the way that we speak is inherently sort of egoistic. Um, when you're talking about somebody outside of you, whether you're talking to that person or whether that person has no idea that you're talking to them or about them or whatever, it, it, it's, it's sort of – it shouldn't matter to, to a linguist because the linguist only cares about what they are saying at any given moment and that they, that they are saying it into the public void where anybody can see it or not see it or whatever, right? Whether or not I'm talking to the listener or about the listener on the show doesn't really matter, sort of like that. So instead of using a possessive there and a possessive your, instead of talking about, you know, their cat or your cat, depending on who I'm talking to or who I'm talking about, they want to, post-grammarists, they want to get rid of that altogether. They just want to create one word, one singular possessive, no matter who or what you're talking about. And that, the one that they all sort of came to agree on Yes. Is the word doink. <laughs> Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>